Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can listen to us worldwide live in the moment or check out the archives at RadioNorthland.org. We're also on the TuneIn app, Pioneer 90.1, all three of our channels, by the way. This is Wrestling Memories. I'm Glenn Brockett along with my co-host who uh, has found his way into the indoor studio this week. Uh, it's going to get, it's getting, it's already gotten a little bit on the warmer side down there deep in the heart of Texas, but he perseveres nonetheless and thankfully. Hopefully he is indoors. I don't want him melting in the uh, 100 plus heat today. Let's welcome him in the Grizzle Vet, Mike McCurdy. How you doing, Glenn? I have spoken with Kenny Bolin, and he did recommend that I work inside today. He was very afraid for my health. You know, you know okay. it's, a, it's a lovely 102 degrees today, so I decided the mobile studio with no AC was not going to be my location of choice for the day. No, no, no. We don't want it to be the last episode of Wrestling Memories. Then no. But anyway, uh, boy, it's uh, been quite wrestling. It's just like everywhere I turn on the TV. Again, we talk about this the last couple of weeks, but it's been the case again. Uh, another solid episode, another solid night of uh, wrestling programming on A and E this past Sunday with uh, with the big uh, treasure hunt for Andre the Giant merchandise. Boy, that was. I, mean, I really like the fact that they made it a two hour. I thought they did an excellent job with that. Your thoughts? I thought it was great. I actually thought that was the season finale, but it's not. There's another two-hour show on Sunday, which is, I believe, Ric Flair in the Butterfly Road. So I'm hoping maybe Ric Flair kind of gets the, you know, career biography treatment that Andre got. But Andre's was amazing. And I'm going to admit, I'm going to admit it. You know, I was a little like Mark Henry. I teared up a little bit when they showed the footage at the end when they were spreading his ashes on the ranch. Mm-hmm. That got me a little bit. And it got me. Okay. Okay. At first, I thought that uh, you were going to be like Mark Henry and almost want to tear off uh, Sonny Ono's head. Yeah, uh, Sonny Ono. Yeah, you, you gotta love Sonny, little hustler. Uh, <laughs> if he's listening to the show, much love. But yeah, no. They went to make an offer, and he set up an auction. Like, what the hell? I can't believe no, I didn't want to that. Squat him though. I absolutely like I was when I saw that go down, I'm like, wow, Sonny, you are a brave, brave soul. Uh, but I mean, you get what you get with Sonny, though. I mean, that's that's just kind of the guy we, we've known for all these years. Yeah, and I don't I, think I, he's I think really so. going to start changing uh, or turning over a new leaf. And plus, with a camera on, he's going to work. He's going to work more than he ever worked. This is very true. But dude, the stuff they found was great. I never knew Andre wore a pink satin jacket. I loved it. I never knew he wore a rain jacket like that before. It was not very Andre, actually, but no, it was fascinating to see the stuff, you know? Yeah, and they really talked about the rareness of Andre wearing something, uh, you know, like a ring jacket or anything. I mean, it, it really, he was just a presence on in and of himself. I mean, he wasn't really known for uh, any of the flowing robes or, or the like. He would occasionally wear a vest. That was about, that's what yeah. I thought he always had. I never knew anything about a jacket. You know, I love the giant machine mask because I always thought that was just one of the greatest gimmicks ever. Because mm-hmm. they didn't hide that it was Andre the Giant. You know, because obviously you can't. No. But in interviews, you know, oh, you, you, you've never spoken to me before. And it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> But I lo- Mr. America before Mr. America was a thing. Oh, absolutely. And then you even you have Bill Eady with him too. I mean, Bill Eady was uh, you know, the go- I think he was the right guy pre-demolition acts and uh post mass superstar. I mean, speaking of which, we wish him uh get well. He's been really having some some health uh, problems here recently. I, I did hear about that. And I found out by listening to the Jim Cornette podcast that Blackjack Mulligan was a machine as well. Oh yeah, they and they had, he was briefly <sighs> 
And then they then they did all the gimmick machines for all the house shows and stuff. But you know what? We should bring our guest in because I think he was uh, in, in working in the pro wrestling business, uh, you know, during the times of the machines and all the stuff that has been covered uh, nostalgia wise on A&E here in the last few mo- weeks here. I'm well over a month. I think it's time we bring him back. What do you think, Mike? I think so. I'm looking forward to conversation with this gentleman again. Yes. Our last show was great. Yes, and his book is fantastic. I mean, gosh, we, we, we barely even scratched the surface the first time around. Ringman, my 32 years in the surreal world of pro wrestling. You can find it wherever you get your books or wherever you go locate to buy your stuff, Amazon, the like, all of that. But it's so good that he was he agreed. He was so gracious uh, in agreeing to come on to the program once again. And we have a whole bunch of stories and it's so good to have him. David Dwinell, Dave Dwinell, welcome back to Wrestling Memories. Well, thank you very much, and it's certainly my honor to uh, be invited back on your show and uh, enjoy talking with yourself and Michael um, uh, about a month and a half ago. Yeah, it was really a fun conversation, and I, I mean, I truly meant it, and, uh, you know, I followed through here because I said, you know, we had to have you back on because it was just, I, I just enjoyed sitting and chatting and listening to your stories, man, and I mean, we, and like I said, there is so much to talk about, and, you know, Mike and I were talking earlier here at the top of the show about all of these uh, things going on with uh, nostalgia, with pro wrestling nostalgia, with the WWE and their, their their treasure hunt show, and of course their biographies that the A and E has been working on with the WWE. Uh, you mentioned to me uh, in in a message uh, that uh, you were watching, and you, you you even popped up in on some of the picks or some of the highlights. Tell us a little bit about that, and we can get into some of the stories and take us back to the times uh, of which uh, you know you worked with these guys. Well, of course, I've been watching every Sunday with anticipation the treasure hunts as well as the bios. And when the Mick Foley biography was on, uh, they had Mick in a very early match, uh, a tag team match. I couldn't make out who the other members were. One of them looked like a King Kalua. And um, there I was in a ring with um, a very, very young Mick Foley in one of his first matches. I think it might have even been a handheld camera by a friend or, or a relative. Mm-hmm. And um, I was featured in the ring with him. And if I recall correctly, he was wrestling under the name of Jack Foley or Cactus Jack Foley. And he had pretty much just turned pro. And this was out in Long Island. And then I was watching the Jake episode of Lost Treasures, and they have one um, flash with Jake in the ring, and his face is quite bloodied, and I'm crossing over, and it looks like I can only see from the backside, but if I recognize the backside, it looked a little bit like Rikishi. I have no idea what match that was from, but it was kind of a surprise to um, see myself um, in, in two of those episodes. So I was I was a little bit surprised, uh, happily surprised to see that you know they were on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really cool. I mean, it must be. I mean, it kind of brings back the old memories. Uh, I mean, you talked about uh, Cactus Jack McFoley uh, and uh, that indie show he worked on. Was that a time? Was that a Mark Tendler prom- promoted show, or was it somebody uh, somebody else in that Long Island area? Was he still around at that point? Say it was Mark Tendler who was working with another fellow whose name escapes me. It's a Jack Barnett. Jack Barnett had the license, and Mark Tendler would run the back room. And this is one of Jack's, I believe, first appearances, and I'd love to get a copy of that whole match. Um, As I said, it might have been done by a friend of his. 
And um, it, it, I, I, I recall, and I did state in the book, and I won't tell it now, let them buy the book and read it, mm-hmm. but there was a very funny story of what took place uh, after that match in the locker room, and I said to myself, this guy is some character. I think he's chosen the right profession. I do recall that match uh, fondly, and uh, the match with Jake, I can't recall at all. I don't know, but that was, I'm sure that Cactus Jack was was a show, and probably Dominic DiNucci brought him down with maybe a few other wrestlers, and Dominic used to appear on Mark shows, and sometimes his other student, Shane Douglas, um, who wrestled as, I think, Troy Ondorf. Mm-hmm. At the time, Paul Ondorf's nephew or something. <laughs> yeah, I could. Bear, I, I I just remember that faintly uh, of of Shane when he was uh, cutting his teeth in the business. But I mean, those indie shows. I mean, another presence that was on uh, a lot of those shows, and then later on, he uh, gained some fame in ECW and WCW, and for a while, the WWF in a tag team was Ted Petty, or a.k.a. the Cheetah Kid. Now, and Ted was really a, a guy that was uh, a big part, uh, a, a guy that was always, that seemed to be on the cards in the early, mid, and possibly late 1980s, all of these uh, Eastern uh, pro wrestling shows, Northeastern shows. Could you uh, talk a little bit about Ted Petty? Because, uh, you mean, a little bit when he was the Cheetah Kid, but then, uh, you know, and he, as he moved on and became uh, a rock or rock well, when I first started working with Ted, um, he was uh, bringing rings. To, he had, I think he owned two rings, and he used to he would set up the ring, and then he would always be in the first match, usually as the cheetah kid, and um, it would set the tone for the evening. He'd have a high flying match. It would be an exciting match, and people would uh, really respond to it. And I, and I have to say, in all honesty, Ted was one of the nicest people I ever met in the business. He never changed. When he became a a, a star later on, man, he never forgot me. We talked about the early days. He'd come up and hug me. He he just was a wonderful person. And uh, the kind of guy, he he died much too young, really. It was such, I was so taken aback when I heard that he had passed away because I was so happy for him that he had gotten that big push as Rocco Rock, one of the, what was it, the gangsters? Uh, Public Enemy. Uh, They started off uh, with Haim. Well, Heyman was kind of the the mastermind behind really uh, you know taking uh, those guys you know both Ted and of course Johnny Grunge to to that that level of which uh, they became more than just those independent uh, you know mainstays where they ended up uh, with thanks to cable TV they ended up becoming uh, pretty big stars there for a while. Oh, they did, and again, uh, good workers, hard workers. Um always fun to be around also and like i say i can't say enough good things about ted just uh, and he's one of the first people i met on the independent circuit um, when i was working with the original northeast championship wrestling with tommy Jeanette. Uh, he always used ted's rings and he always had ted as i said in the first match to kind of set the tone for the evening tell us a little bit about tom Jeanette. i mean it's a name that is mentioned in your book but tell us a little bit about him and uh, you know what his contribution was to, to pro wrestling in that part of the country at the time again back in the early 80s you didn't have um 2170 independents in each state mm-hmm. um you only had a a few independents and the independent shows were really uh, very often chock-filled with talent. You know, Johnny had some of the boys he was training on some of these shows, or maybe Larry Sharp. They always had a bunch of superstars on the show, Iron Sheik, Slaughter, Abdullah the Butcher, Tanaka, 
And Tommy uh, ran for about 10 years. He was a businessman. He didn't know, he was the first to admit he didn't know that much about wrestling, and that's why I think he was successful. He drew good crowds. He treated it professionally. He, he, he was one of the first independents to always have music. He'd be playing music before the show. He'd be bringing out the guys with music. One match after the other, there was no lag between matches. He didn't want lags going on, and, 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 and a true professional. He always dressed professionally, and he was the ring announcer. And then he brought us over to county fairs for a number of years. These were just terrific. I mean, we would do two shows, one at, one at 3 o'clock and one at 6 o'clock or 7, and the first show would set up matches for the second. Of course, people were in a good mood when they were at the fair, and he'd usually have the midgets. He'd always have the midgets, Little Louie. Uh, the fellow who became Dink the Clown eventually, uh, Tiger Jackson, and he had Misty Blue Sims in one of her stable of wrestlers. Mm -hmm. So they got a good cross-section. Uh, Bill Eady appeared on many of those shows, Jimmy Superfly. So they, they were a little bit different than the indie shows today. They were, they were chock-filled with talent, top to bottom usually, and good matches and, and well thought out. Of course, Johnny Rods was running the room for Tommy, so you knew you were going to get a professional product. And uh, one of my favorite sayings is um, we, we, we finally got bounced from the fairs by the um, racing pigs because they put on five shows a day and they didn't need showers or locker rooms. <laughs> well, they do have a point. <laughs> you mentioned Johnny Rods, Mr. Unpredictable. Now, there's a guy who uh, was known uh, for being more of a, of a carpenter in the ring, but he took a lot of that knowledge and stuff and, and created uh, a training haven for himself and many wrestlers uh, through the through the years. And, 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 you know, while, while promoting pro wrestling, what can you talk about when we talk about Johnny Rods? Uh, what can you, 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 well, how would you describe him and, as far as how you know him and, and some of the things you were involved with, uh, with Johnny? You talked about some of the stuff he did for Jeanette uh, with Northeast Championship Wrestling. But let's talk about Johnny's uh, own little uh, niche for himself. Greatest tweener, in my opinion, in the business. And for those listening, a tweener is one who could work as a face and equally be at home as a heel. Johnny was very close to Vince McMahon Sr. Vince would very often have Johnny break in new talent. My first match back in 1982 was Johnny Rods against 21-year-old Eddie Gilbert. And Johnny would tell Vince, um, I think this guy is good as a heel, I think this guy is good as a face, I don't think this guy's going to make it. Um, we got to work with him. Uh, Vince had a great respect for Johnny, and Johnny was very, very well respected in the business. And I will always be grateful to Johnny because without him, I wouldn't have made it to a second match. I mean, as I mentioned in the book, I went into the ring dead cold, never talked to a wrestler, never been in a ring, didn't know which ropes to climb through, didn't know if it was fake or, or real. And... Um, Donald Scullin, who was the promoter on the show, said, uh, it's getting kind of late, Dave. You better go up and talk to Johnny. And I'm going up the stairs going, uh, what do I talk about? The weather? Johnny has the wife. He sat me down and he talked about our match. And I said, boy, this guy's no heel. This guy is not a heel. And he involved me in the match. I was pushing and shoving him, and I disqualified him, and I threatened to charge him a fine with the commission. And he wanted me to be part the match. Johnny's matches always told stories, and he wrestled everyone from Bruno to Hulk to Andre to, if you name the person in the business, Johnny wrestled them. And he does hold high respect from the boys in the business. 
Mm-hmm. There's no question. And you know what the genius of Johnny Rods is? He went out west. He didn't even have to buy new gear. He just became Jabba Rook. Exactly. <laughs> A lot of people don't know that. And he's greatly responsible for the career of... I, I, I got a mental block on his name, not and I'm trying to think of it. One of the greatest people who, who conducted the uh, Piper, Roddy Piper. I saw Piper's book, and, uh, his earlier book, and Johnny was talking to me. Piper was a thin little kid, but Johnny thought he had a great personality for the ring. And Johnny worked very hard with him. And Roddy Piper does um, credit Johnny in a number of places with him being successful early in his career. Yes, he had a very big influence on Roddy Piper, and Roddy never forgot that. You got him, you got Johnny Rods, and another guy, when I think about that era as far as uh, personalities and you know guys who worked a little bit more of the enhancement matches but parlayed into a, a, a second life as a trainer and a well, well, this guy became pretty well known for the guy he brought into the business. We're talking about Larry Sharp and the Monster Factory and the introduction uh, to the world. Uh, to uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, Scott Bigelow. I mean, this was uh, a big moment in pro wrestling. I mean, I remember reading this uh, here in Minnesota uh, in one of the magazines. It might have even been uh, not only the After magazines, but uh, some of the stuff that Carmine Despirito was working up with at the time. But talk about Larry Sharp, the Monster Factory, and, and that, and Bam Bam Bigelow, and their sort of uh, impact uh, on on the wrestling scene in, at, in you know around the mid to late nineteen eighties. Johnny and his school and uh, Larry and his school very often would appear on the independent shows. They would crisscross. Matter of fact, Johnny would wrestle Larry on the show. <laughs> nice. They would have their boys from their respective people that they had been training work on the shows as well. And it gave me an opportunity to work with a whole lot of people who went on to become famous before anyone really knew who they were, I think on the last show I mentioned, Bam Bam Bigelow was appearing between before 300 people, and he was very nervous, and he said, I've never appeared before a large crowd like this. And uh, I thought it was going to be a terrible match because of his size, and, and the man impressed me so much. I said, you better not forget me when you're famous. And he, he goes, oh, come on. I said, no, no. I said, you're going to go someplace. Johnny and Larry really taught the essence of how to wrestle and how to work in the ring and how to sell the moves. I can't say enough about them. Uh, both, both, both of them had wonderful um, wrestlers in their schools, and uh, I'm trying to think of some of the others that Larry had. I know he had Bigelow, so forth, and, and Tommy Jeanette would use their talent on the shows also. But later on, I worked with people from Johnny's school, like I did some of the first matches on the fair shows. This is the first place. With people like Taz and Tommy Dreamer and Big Sweet William, I'm trying to uh, Kid USA, Armin Ciceri, and uh, there were a lot of people in Johnny Schools who who went on uh, the, the um, Devon Dudley, uh, who was from New Rochelle near where I lived. Um, I had some of his first matches on the indie shows. Also, a wonderful worker. So um, yeah, it was um, it was a wonderful time because you had you had a lot of um, very very good workers and. You were working in high schools and colleges where the fans were close and it was an interaction, and I think the wrestlers played off this uh, perhaps much better than today. Well, I think going through those uh, circuits, you know, those, uh, you know, those high schools, those, those, you know, 
uh, armories and stuff. I think it's a character building exercise than just, you know, you know, having the goods and then going down to Orlando and working at the train, you know, at the performance center. I mean, with performance center, it's well and good, but it's nothing like uh, the, the old days of, of playing into these crowds for these crowds that just seem to be so much more appreciative. You know, some of these people that probably couldn't get to a, to a major arena or in a major town. It's what some of the stuff that really, you know, really gives pro wrestling its true character. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not knocking um, anybody in wrestling today who charges a lot for tickets because that's just the way the world is. But it was affordable. You could bring a family, mm-hmm. and and I might add, it was a family show. You know, it was it was family orientated. Most of the independents, if not all, that I worked on, it wasn't much blood to be uh, splattered, and there was no cursing. There was no um, n- not an excessive force of chairs or things like that. So it was a little more of a family show you could bring the kids to. Uh, although when I first started working, there were almost no kids at the shows. It were just blue-collar workers and white-collar closet fans. This is Wrestling Memories uh, with our very special guest, the returning guest, Mr. David Dwinell. I am going to be bringing into the conversation the Grizzle Vet Mike McCurdy, who has been sitting back in the wings, ready to go with questions for uh, Mr. Dwinell. I'm going to be bringing him in right now. Grizz, you ready to roll? David, once again, thank you for joining us. Uh, I was looking forward to this conversation. Um, in the recent weeks, like Glenn mentioned, we've had a, just an influx of, you know, just wrestling. I mean, you can find anything uh, lately. The A&E biographies, Most Wanted Treasure, Dark Side of the Ring. And a lot of the subject matter of this past few weeks, these have been guys that, you know, you had the chance to work with not. Uh, just this past week, we had the two-hour Most Wanted Treasures on Andre. Um did you ever, did you have any chance to work in the ring with Andre or do you have any Andre stories you could share and maybe kind of give us your opinion on what you saw on the most wanted treasure? Sure. Well, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned this on a previous show, but I'll say it again in case somebody missed the previous show. Uh, I did work with Andre a few times late in his career. My uh, favorite Andre story is the first time I worked with him. Of course, you're in a little bit in awe because he is one of the megastars of all times. So I walked into the, this was at the White Plains, um, White Plains County Center, and uh, I walked upstairs, and Andre was sitting on a table reading a newspaper. So I walked over to Andre, and um, I said to him, I said, as, as I did to all workers that I worked with, I wasn't treating him any different. I I said, Andre, is there anything special about your match I should know? Um, after about a minute, he looked up, he looked at me, and he said, count to three. And he looked back at the paper, and that, that was it. That was the gist of the conversation. So anytime I had his match after that, I just counted to three. I never bothered to try to engage in a, uh, confer- uh, in a uh, discussion with him, but I understand he was in a tremendous amount of pain late in his career, especially the back muscles. I was told if he fell down, he couldn't get up. He'd have to roll out of the ring to get to stand up. A lot of pain from over the years. And um, I'm sure a lot of strain from, I mean, where could he go? He'd walk on the streets of New York and everybody would run up to him. He, 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 He couldn't go to a movie theater and fit into a seat. You know, I think it was tough on him, and you know, I think late in his career is when I worked with him, and um, he he just seemed to be somewhat uh, tired. You know what I'm saying? And I think the business wore on him. It certainly wore on his body. Like I say, I think he was in a lot of pain at the end. I wish I had have had an opportunity to work with him uh, earlier in his career. Um, 
you know, but that wasn't the way it was. So uh, I enjoyed the biography treasures also. He certainly left his mark in the business as one of the, you know, all-time megastars. Just to have been in the same ring with him. Uh, my other memory of him is when we were leaving and I was walking behind him, my face came up to his rear end. You know, that's how big he was. Another person who's kind of come into the into the spotlight now due to uh, Dark Side of the Ring, actually, probably one of the more talked about episodes so far this season, and you mentioned him uh, getting to work with him in your book, and that's uh, Jake Roberts. You know, we learned a lot more, not only about him, but kind of, you know, living life with his father, you know, Grizzly Smith. Um, can you share a little bit about Jake Roberts and, you know, were some of these things that we found out, were these things that were being kind of talked about in the locker room a little bit? Because I've heard, you know, stories here and there about, uh, you know, Grizzly Smith since the uh, Dark Side episode. Well, I really didn't know Grizzly. Uh, I pretty much only knew um, Jake. I never heard too many stories about Grizzly. Not not really having traveled too much on a road with Jake, I only knew him from the locker room and from the ring. Yes, I would say early in his earlier in his career when I was working with him, he seemed to be more vibrant, more you know, there was a period obviously in his life where he was hitting a low and I did notice a difference from the beginnings when I started working with him to the middle middle when I was working with him. And, and now that he's recovered from his demons, he seems to have come full circle. I, I always liked working with Jake because Jake was always well-received by the audience. He was, I mean, if you look at any of the polls from, I guess it would be, what, the 90s when he did most of his work, um, or the late 80s to the 90s, he's always listed in the top ten. You know, he's consistently listed in the top ten as far as wrestlers are concerned, I, I there were a few things I recall in particular about Jake, and that's one of them is the night he wrestled Nails, and Nails uh, busted his nose up pretty good. He, he threw Nails threw um, Jake into the ropes and put his leg up for you know he put his foot up, and and Jake you know ran into it, and as he ran into it, he pushed it into Jake's face and. Jake ended up pretty much with a, a bruised and bloody nose, and I don't even—he may have even probably broken his nose that night. But again, um, I remember Jake bringing me into the fold. By first time I worked with him, I think it was in Nassau Coliseum. He said, uh, "Dave, would you bend over and pick up my my snake bag?" And I said, "Sure." And as I bent over, he put the python around me, and the thing started wrapping itself around me. And I, I'm not particularly fond of snakes, especially big snakes. So I stood there frozen, and Jake looked at me and said, Dave, would you mind acting a little scared? And I go, Jake, I don't have to act. I am scared. And so I, I, I had to really put on a face that I was scared because I, I just I, I thought I was going to pass out. And then another night I'm taking a shower, and one of the snakes comes into the shower stall with me. So I, I had a few confrontations with um, with Jake and his snakes, but... I, I just want to mention one thing about Jake, okay? When it, when it came time to write my book, okay, as as you well know and people know, I'm not a no-name in a business. I mean, I was around 32 years, and maybe I'd be recognized by people, uh, but I'm not a no-name in a business. So it came time to write the book. I went to maybe four or five wrestlers that I worked with that liked me and this and that, and I asked 
if they would give me a blurb for the back of the book, and none of them responded. I don't know if it's because it would have been a conflict with Vince, or they felt bad, or they just didn't want to, but Jake did. Jake got back to me and said, you know, Dave, I always liked working with you. You are always good with me. You always worked hard. He goes, I'll be more than happy to write a blurb for the back of your book, and he did. And for this, I will be extremely grateful to him forever for, because, um, you know, he didn't he didn't forget his old buddy, the ref, and um, quote me in the book. I think he quoted it as saying, uh, uh, to have a good match, you need a, a, a face, a heel, and a good ref, and Dave was one of the good ones. So as far as Jake is concerned, I know he's been through a lot. I know um, as far as I'm concerned, he, he, he's always treated me really good. <clears throat> Another subject of uh, Dark Side that came out this, this last week was their season or mid-season finale was uh, the Dynamite Kid. That's another man you've gotten a chance to work in the ring with. Uh, he was, you know, obviously tag team partner, Dave Boy Smith, the British Bulldog. And such an amazing talent in the ring. I mean, the footage they showed on Dark Side of the Ring, stuff you can find on YouTube. You know, Dynamite Kid was obviously one of, you know, the greats. You know, Chris Benoit cited him as, as an influence as well as many others. But, uh, you know, what kind of, you got any stories you can share with us about getting to work with Dynamite and Davey and uh, just, you know, how he was in the ring? I did work with the British Bulldogs um, when, when I worked as the British Bulldogs as a tag team, but I worked more, I think, with Davy Boy Smith. And one of the matches that stands out with Davy Boy, and it is on YouTube, and uh, it was one of probably, it was in the garden, and it was one of my favorite matches of all times. And it was Davy Boy Smith and the Warlord. And I believe both of them were undefeated at the time. Um, as singles, and uh, D- Davy Boy was um, was very again. I found him very easy to work with, um, and that match that match had a lot going for it because I, I guess possibly because I was involved in the match. What happened was the Warlord was holding Davy Boy's tights twice during the match, and I caught him, and on the pin. Davy Boy had grabbed his tights, and I missed it. So it set up uh, the Warlord to clamp on his favorite hold on the back of Davy Boy's neck and wouldn't release it, and I couldn't get him to release it. Uh, Bobby Heenan said, you're going to need the jaws of life, buddy, to get that hold off. Davy was easy to work with. The Bulldogs worked, obviously, were were a top tag team and worked very well together. I can remember them... I think it w- they, w- they were doing, weren't they feuding with um, Beefcake and... Um, Valentine? Believe it or not, they, they had a match, I think, at Mount Vernon High School. Lou Albano um, put the show on, and I believe that the two of them were... I, I found that the other night. After I watched um, Beefcake and, 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 and Valentine, I decided, I said, I think I did a match with them, and I kept all my old programs and all my old sheets from... And sure enough, I, I, I can imagine that match being held at um, Mount Vernon High School. But again, again, they were the last match of the evening, and they put on probably a 20-minute match. You know, they didn't just go in there and, and, and fool around for five or ten minutes and let's go home. They, 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 they could have. It was the last match of the evening, but they put on a 20-minute match, and I remember that distinctly saying, wow, this is a great match. And just again, they were easy to work with. When you're working with professionals like that, you, you, you know it makes your job so much easier. People used to think that 
people would often ask me, did you, wasn't it much more difficult working with the WWF? Wrong. I mean, working with them was a piece of cake because you're talking um, super professional. Some of the independents, I kind of was like taking my life in my hands with some of these guys. So, you know, it was just always a pleasure to work with them. And, of course, working with the tag team champions, anytime you work a championship match, it's, it, it's exciting. It, it, it's really exciting. Do you watch any of the current product you know, going on? Uh, anything like WWE, AEW? Do you watch any of the current uh, product? Do I watch the current product? Um, yes, I yes. do. And I'll be very honest with you. I, I find it a little difficult to watch over three straight hours. I, I, I do watch the WWE. I, have, I do, do watch A&E. Um, to a lesser degree, I watch, and, and not because, for whatever reason, I just... Um, Sometimes it's on later in the evening, uh, TNA and Impact. I, I do watch it, and I do still have, um, you know, I do still have great interest in the sport. Um, there was a time when I was forced to retire because of the knee injury that I didn't want anything to do with it. I, I don't want to watch it. If I can't be part of it, I became very bitter for maybe about four months, five months. And then uh, Michael Lombardi called me from NEW and said, Dave, why don't you come to a show? We miss you. I went to a show, and then I realized it was time to turn it over to the younger generation. Um, and, of course, the product today is different, but it is in every sport. And I, I, in the book, I do mention, I don't think it's fair to compare today's product with yesterday. Everybody says, oh, yesterday was better. Oh, today is better. Different times, different situations, different circumstances. I sometimes find it a little difficult to follow at times. But, uh, again, my hat's off to any anybody who puts on the tights and steps in the ring from any era or generation. I have great respect for And they're carrying on to tradition today. They're bigger. They're stronger. They're more powerful, I think, obviously, than in the old days um, in the classic era. They, um, they're entertaining. And, and again, I, um, my hat is off to anybody that steps into the ring. I, I kind of was on the cusp of when it was changing. When they deregulated in 2000, um, my last show, The Rock was on it. I, I didn't actually work. They didn't. The, the, the state workers would show up, get paid, but didn't work. And The Rock was on it, and it was a bunch of Chris Benoit was on it. So I was there kind of at the cusp when it was changing. And, and again, um, I have a certain amount of nostalgic remembrance for the old days, but again, I'm 72 years old, and um, I would have a little bit of a prejudice towards when I was working and the guys I worked with, but again, you don't think, I would love to work with some of these guys today. I would absolutely love it, you know, were I 15, 20 years younger. Now, I asked about the current product because one thing, I mean, I listen, obviously, podcasts and our show and stuff are kind of the thing now, and a lot of topics on podcasts now are people talking about, you know, the third man in the ring, the referee, you know, in the ring. When you watch, you know, the current, you know, matches and all these things, you know, and you see the referee, do you see their role as different from when you were there? Because a lot of people now say the referee is just kind of there is, you know, some people have said they're just window dressing. They're not really enforcing any rules because everything is, you know, just over the top, over, you know, no disqualification, whatever. Do you see the role of the referee now in the current product is more diminished than it was when you were in the ring? 
and again, not the, not not meaning anything against the current referees, I think the job when I worked was much more difficult, and I'll tell you why, because it was kayfabe. We had to constantly um, convince the audience that what they were watching was real, okay? Now, everybody knows through, through the Internet and through Vince that this is all prescribed. It's all predetermined. They didn't know that then. So my job was kind of like the role of the boxing referee. As Johnny explained to me, he said, Dave, you are the sheriff. You take control of the match. You have to help add legitimacy to the match. You don't favor the face. You don't favor the heel. You you get your head down, get your head down near their shoulders because it, you've got to make the people realize you're looking at the shoulders. I mean, I've seen referees on their knees on the other side of the ring counting and jumping up in the air every time they count. And, and again, I, I don't want to knock the, the referees today, and I'm not, but I'm just saying that I think it was tough because we had to add legitimacy to this. And I came up with things that uh, I felt uh, were important uh, that, that, that kind of added a little bit. Like if somebody was kicking the guy, I would say, hey, what, what, what the heck are you doing? This ain't football. You're kicking the man. Or if he were, if he were choking him, I'd say, you're choking a man. Let him out of the corner. And the guy would look at me and say, I'm not choking him. And I'd say, then what are you, giving him a throat massage? Um, and, 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 or if he was punching a man, I'd say, this ain't boxing. Open up that fist. I think there was more interplay between the ref and, 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 and the, um, the wrestlers back then. And, again, I think the toughest thing was we had to keep up kayfabe. And in order to do that, you needed to have a ref that worked with the wrestlers and knew when to stay out of the way, knew when to get involved. And, and so, again, as I say, I, I, don't, I never really refereed with the WWE or any of the larger promotions or the TV promotions today. I came in at the end where I found it so distracting, but then again, I'm old school. I found it distracting to wear an earpiece and have someone talking to me while I'm trying to pay attention to what I'm supposed to be doing during the match. So the referees, in one sense, they, they've got to be listening to the back room today. From what I understand, they've got to be watching the action. And I'm sure it's, it's, it's in a different way, it's much more difficult today, okay? They probably have it more difficult today, and there's probably more competition for their jobs today. You know, I, I don't envy their task today. Let's put it that way. I'm not going to say uh, it, they have an easier job today. I would say a different type of job today. Uh, like you mentioned, you know, you can't really compare today to, you know, the past. And this is a different style. It's evolution. You can't take, for example, you know, you can't take Christopher Reeve's Superman and compare that to, you know, Superman with Henry Campbell now just because of, you know, special effects and evolution. Wrestling is the same way. You know, the styles change, the things change, the bases are still the same. But one thing that has evolved, and I think it's for the best, and I love it, is the role of the referee is also now You've got women referees in the ring. This this was not a thing back, you know, in that time. You got referee Aubrey Edwards at AEW. There's two or three with NXT and SmackDown and Raw now. Uh, you see that, you know, you compare this now and the way things evolve. You know, the role of you know of women referees in the ring. You know, what, what what's your take on that? Uh, the female referees, well, certainly 
in this era of um, women's lib and everything else uh, and, and, and equality, uh, I certainly don't see that as a problem. I, I think it would be um, – I, I, you, you have women refereeing boxing today, for example. I don't think you had it in the, old, the older days because it was such a closed society. You know what I'm saying? It was very closed. Today, it, 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 today it's become wide open and all for the better. Um, but I wouldn't have wanted some women in the locker room with some of these guys back back in the day. It would have been these were pretty pretty rugged and rough and tough guys. And I mean, if if, if they didn't like you, if you did the wrong thing, they, they they would take care of you in the ring. You know, I got some some referees. Uh, I, I I've been told have been held in a corner, and the other guy broke his arm. You know, so um, I think today with everything prescribed and everything down to a T. Um, it, it, it lends itself much greater to having female wrestlers, and I think it's a good thing. And I, I think the fans enjoy it. And the idea, too, is you've got a lot more kids at these events today, a lot more younger people at the events today, and a lot of them are girls and women. They should have female referees. I wouldn't mind working with, with, with female referee. I think it would be great. If you had to, someone came to you and they asked you for, your, your what you think was the best match you ever had the chance to work, or your favorite match. You know, looking back, what would be a match that you'd like people to to look at that you got to work that and want to be remembered for? I have my favorite match of all times was Bruno Sammartino versus Cowboy Bob Orton because Bruno was my hero growing up, and he held a belt for such a long period of time. Uh, that was a uh, certainly one of my favorite. Ma- I don't know if I have a favorite, but I have a few that I would put up there to choose from. That would certainly be one of them. Another favorite match would be, um, or, or one that I, uh, from a technical point of view, Nick Bockwinkle against Rick Martell with uh, Buddy Rogers in the corner of Nick Bockwinkle. Both Bockwinkle and Martell were outstanding workers. And from beginning to end, the match was, without a doubt, um, just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful match. Being involved with the match with the star Billy Graham on an NWA show because of the champion he was. Harley Race, again, a, a wonderful match. It, you know, I, not, I don't think there's one, spe- if I had to say one specific one that was probably close to perfect, it would have been the Warlord against Davey Boy. And if you look at it on YouTube, there was another one too, which was which was great, and it got great reviews from um, from Bobby Heenan, and even Bobby Heenan said this is a great match, and Monsoon did. And believe it or not, it was uh, Marty Jannetty against Pat Tanaka. They went for about I mean sixteen, seventeen minutes, and I I don't think they had an, uh, any rest holes, and that's on YouTube too. I don't think they had any rest holes in the match. It was just see getting involved in a match like that. From my point of view, where I have to work the whole 16 minutes because they're working, that's the kind of match I, I, I honestly loved the most because I felt that I was really getting into it with them. There was not like, oh, here comes another rest hold, or oh boy, here we go again. No, they, they just and Fuji was involved in that. Those are some of the ones that really stand out in my mind, being very, very special. But it's tough to pick one in particular. 
All right, all right. We're going to uh, go on down the home stretch here for Rasslin Memories with our very special guest, Mr. Dave Jonell, referee extraordinaire. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, your experience uh, working shows for a, a, another very eccentric character in the world of professional wrestling. He left us, uh, well, in a blaze of his own glory. I'm talking about Herb Abrams and Herb Abrams Universal Wrestling Federation. Now, how did you get hooked up with this outfit? And talk about some of the the, the, the stuff that you did work with Herb, uh, who was was uh, not exactly no, uh, known for being uh, as an even-keeled sort of a personality. He was pretty much uh, kind of like his own sort of wrestling personality in and of himself. Well, I never worked. TV with Herb. I think he had did most of his TV in Vegas and in L.A., if I recall correctly. Uh, I did mostly East Coast shows with him. To, to be very honest with you, I, I don't remember a whole lot about him. I remember he had the Universal Wrestling Federation. I don't have any negative vibes against Herb. There's nothing where I ever had any negative vibes against him. I do recall working a number of shows, which was for the Universal, with Herb on it. But if I had had a problem, I would have remembered it. But I don't ever remember having a problem with Herb. I kept wishing that I, he would come on the East Coast to do some TV, because I would have loved to do TV with him. And as a matter of fact, I had a t conversation recently with the fellow who's doing a book called, I guess, UWF and Herb Abrams, The Book Project. I've been looking for a tape, a tape I did with Dick Kroll, Tommy D tape from what people are telling me, and it's never surfaced, but it had so many wonderful stars that I appeared with. Bruno's son, Bruno did the commentary. Matter of fact, didn't Bruno do some commentary with Herb at one time? Yes, he, right yes he did. Yes, he did. That I remember. I remember Bruno doing some commentary, and that's why I thought it was a Herb Abrams show. But if anyone listening out there has any knowledge of this tape, uh, I think it was done in Brooklyn or Queens. I mean, everybody who was anybody on the independent circuit, I did Ivan Koloff against David Sammartino. I did Kamala against Biala. Johnny Valiant was the manager of Kamala. Uh, Killer Kowalski was on the show. Anybody. And I, was, I, I swore for years it was a UWF show. And, of course, uh, I found out lately it was probably a Tommy D show not UWF, because a fellow from the book project told me that some of the fellows I named Herb had never, never used. I thought that that was, we did, it, we, did it, we did a demo for the TV show, but evidently it wasn't. But again, that was how many years ago? In 19, you know, that, that, was a, that was quite a while ago. And my memory gets a little, little fuzzy uh, with some of those independents. I don't think I would have worked for Herb too many times, but I do remember his name. I do remember working with him. Uh, I do remember Bruno being around with him at, at the, in, the, in the early days, and uh, I don't remember any any negative or any quirks or anything out of the ordinary with any of his shows that I can that I can remember. So I, I can't really be more helpful as far as that's concerned. You mentioned Mike Lombardi. It's one more thing we're going to talk about. Uh, it was Mike Lombardi who ended up uh, getting involved with a project that became uh, rather infamous. Uh, I mean, we could get into... Well, I mean, we're going to get, not going to get into all the sort of details because that's for another type of podcast. But anyway, uh, my, you, Mike Lombardi, uh, through Billy Stone, uh, got involved uh, with the Heroes of Wrestling, a pay-per-view that aired October 10th, 1999. You had an opportunity to be a part of this pay-per-view. How did you get associated with this Heroes of Wrestling uh, show, and what are your memories of it uh, down there in Biloxi? Mike Lombardi saved my career when they...
deregulated back in 2000. I, I had started working with Mike on some of his very earliest shows, I think his second or third time he ran. Mike liked the way I worked, and in those days I worked all the matches, and I was much younger. Mike was so great to me throughout my career. He he he, um, he, he used me on every show he ever ran after his second or third show. I was on every show. Well, he helped put the talent together and, and was involved in the, in, 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 in the heroes of wrestling. He put the talent together. He was active in the back room and so forth. And it was a great idea on paper. And um, I had forgotten all about it until the 20th anniversary, and a couple people asked me questions about it. And I didn't realize there was like a cult following on this. It was kind of like the the zombies ate my grandmother um, for lunch or something, Mm -hmm. those movies. There's a cult following, and I got involved because of Michael. I was his uh, senior referee at the time, and he had me he had me assigned to the show, which I'm very grateful for. It, it just kind of never really came up. Gordon Soley was supposed to be there announcing, and I was so disappointed, but he was sick at the time and had to back out. So they got an announcer at the last minute who just didn't know wrestling, which didn't help. Uh, I had the um, famous main event, or infamous main event, and we're getting ready to go out. And all four of the participants told me neither none of them were willing to take the pin. So I'm going on to a live pay-per-view in, two, in, in less than two minutes with no finish to the match. Now, it started off with a match with supposed to be two matches. It was supposed to be Bundy against Yokozuna and Neidhart against Jake. But they decided to put... To make it, we made it a tag team match because the two of them came out and got involved in a match, and so I turned it into a tag team match. Well, none of them were willing to take the pin, and I was getting a little nervous. It's live television, and I said to Bundy, whom I was very friendly with, I said, Mr. Bundy, um, how about you throw me out of the ring? I'll get hurt and let another referee come in and deal with this. I can't, I, I can't deal with this. And he said, don't worry about it, Dave. We'll take care of it. And what happened was um, Bundy knocked down Jake and pinned him. Now they weren't the legal people in the ring, so I took a lot of I took some heat on people going, "What's wrong with that referee? Didn't he realize that they weren't the legal people in the ring?" I would have let Bundy pin me to end the match at that point in time because I was getting nervous that they were going to be blaming me if something went wrong. So. We we ended up um, I ended up counting to three on Jake. That was it, and then I get out of the ring, and um, that match was over. But um, I got involved because Michael again Michael always, Michael always used me on his shows, and he recommended me for that particular show. And unfortunately, some of the wrestlers on that show were a little bit past their prime, and it just never it never developed the way it might have and i felt kind of bad about that but again that's life in the unpredictable world of pro wrestling absolutely and that's a great way uh, to uh, wrap up this edition of wrestling memories then and now a big thank you of course uh, to our uh, favorite referee don't tell james beard mike uh, david dunell and of course check out ringman my 32 years in the surreal world of professional wrestling for the grizzle vet mike mccurdy and dave dunell i'm glenn brockett so long for now